and welcome to this week's VFX show. I'm Mike Seymour and we are going mad with Max down the Fury Road. And I'm joined by a uh, two good uh, and long-time friends of FX Guy, but a, uh, a virgin to the VFX show. Uh, Nick, how are you? Very well, thank you, Mike. Thanks for asking us. Uh, and let's just quickly say hello to Zap. How are you, Zap? Still alive as usual. So, so we all know, know Zap and love his contrary views, especially when they clash with mine. But Nick, for those people... I don't have any contrary views. <laughs> <laughs> right. How incredibly uh, subtle of you. And uh, But Nick, uh, tell us, or uh, well, people that don't know, obviously I know, um, uh, your background and where you're from. Uh, well, I'm one of the five co-founders of Boundary Visual Effects. Uh, we've been running uh, for six years now, and we're an outsource company doing compositing, uh, match moving, roto, basically covering all the sort of 2D and sort of 2.5D work. Yeah, and you guys have done some some really great stuff. And uh, as I said, you're uh, great friends of uh, FX Guide. We love your work and have for uh, for a long time now. So it's, uh, it's great. So thanks very much for joining us on the show. We actually wanted to get you on uh, earlier than this uh, for an earlier podcast. It didn't happen. Um, and I think that was in some city we were at. I can't remember where was that. It was like, I'm going to say London. Stuttgart. It was Germany. That's right. Okay. There we go. And of course... Uh, of course, we're always uh, keen to have Zap on. So we're going to be discussing Mad Max. And, uh, you know, this film has really broken through uh, what was, you know, it was, I think was anticipated, but uh, it's definitely broken through with fans as being, you know, worthy of, uh, of being made. There's always a risk with these things when you revive something after a while that everyone, yeah, oh, I used to be so much better in the old days. Plus, of course, we have a different Max in the lead uh, role. The old Max being both... Uh, politically and morally corrupt and uh, no longer uh, very good at the box office. Um, Zab, what do you think of it? Uh, I really like this uh, Mad Maxine movie. Yeah, there was a guy in it too, right? Uh, but uh, Charlize Theron was a great <laughs> Mad Maxine. She, she totally nailed the role. So, yeah, but uh, seriously, I, I actually like this. I was surprised how much I liked it, uh, actually. It, it was, it had a very interesting kind of visual style in We'll get deep into that in so many other ways, but the colorfulness and all that. And i never seen so much center framing since, I think, 2001 Space Odyssey or something. Um, the movie itself really w kept you on the edge of your seat the whole time. I, quite literally, actually, in my case, uh, because it's just one gigantic chase sequence, which on paper might sound actually dull, but in reality, it was quite exciting. Um, this whole post-apocalyptic thing, though, um, I don't know if I kind of buy that premise. It's a thing that's been done so many times, and it's this whole, you know, gangs of evil overlords taking over everything. And it's surprising in these movies, you know, when they're apparently after some scarce resource, like, for instance, gasoline, they tend to spend most of the movie burning said resource. You see the same in Waterworld or whatever, <laughs> like, the, you know... You have to live with that because the, I kind of, you know, this very one very interesting. If you go to the TED.com, the TED Talk site, yep. there's a talk there called uh, When Ideas Have Sex. Uh, the title sounds weird, but it's about cooperation. And it actually shows you that if this kind of scenario was ever to occur, this massive kind of apocalypse, the only thing that would actually be viable would be massive cooperation 
between everybody. So this whole uh, everyone against everyone lone wolf thing would be the, the least viable way. But hey, it's a movie, so you need to have explosions. And there were plenty of those. So yeah, I liked the movie. Nick, it was described to, <laughs> by somebody as being punched in the face for two hours and enjoying it. Uh, do you, did you get punched in the face? I uh, don't really want to reapportion blame here, but uh, before I went to see it, I, a lot of people I trust were sort of raving about it. So I think I sort of arrived at the cinema ex- a expecting too much and b knowing I was doing this, not switching my brain off. So for me, I th- I didn't like the story. I loved the film. So for me, I think it's a really good film. Um, but I think I was expecting more from the script. Uh, to be fair, I did watch uh, the DP interview with George Miller where t- he does make a really good case for why it is the film it w- is, and I am a lot more forgiving and will be watching it again. So, well, what's the, uh, what's the premise of that assertion? Well... <sighs> For me, it was a, it was a bit like the um, Madagascar gag with the penguins. Um, you know, you you she wants you know to get away. Furiosa wants to get away from you know her captors to go back to you know the Wonderland that she remembers. And of course, when she gets there, it's it's gone. It's not what she thought it was, etc. And so then the rest of the film is you know going back, and that to me, you know having seen Madagascar it was sort of I don't know why but that sort of hit my my psyche like of, I totally mm. didn't expect you to link Madagascar to Mad Max Fury Road but that's that's why <laughs> I love you guys best, best left field reference in a VFX show yep. ever. <laughs> right out of the <laughs> gate kind. you set the bench pretty high there <laughs> okay so I, I liked it a lot um, I, I think it's a statement about filmmaking these days that uh, if you want interesting stories, you watch TV shows, and if you want, you know, spectacle, you go to the films, and that's just, I think, what's happened. It's like a uh, a polarization, a magnetic um, thing that's happened. That's, uh, you know, we need the things that we can't get in uh, longer form narrative to be uh, viable. So, in other words, what as television has grown and its ability to tell more and more complex stories because it's got more and more niche. Um, it's marginalised films' ability to tell more and more complex stories and nuanced stories, and and but the thing that TV can't do is you know uh, sort of a massive you know hundred million dollar kind of spectacle like this, and so it's sort of effectively the industry pushes to the spectacle uh, for film and then pushes to you know dialogue because like let's face it, I mean I know how many lines that Tom Hardy had, but he made uh, a 007 movie look like Shakespeare in terms of uh, you know it's ridiculous. And <laughs> um, um, what did you think of his uh, Australian accent? Yeah, well you know hmm, yeah, wasn't I mean, quite pack rim, was it? <laughs> I've got to say that that the original Mad Max films. Um, the first one actually had some narrative, right? Like, I mean, you sort of saw his wife, you know, it was like a point to it. And also it was very low budget and indie. Um, and then, of course, the second one really was the film that was sort of a bit like Terminator 2, right? Where you had the first film that was indie and the second film kind of had the budget. And and in its day, Mad Max 2 was just the bee's knees. I mean, it was just growing up in Australia. It was, you know, you'd, you'd want to get that tattooed on your arm. Maybe it was just the thing. When we got to Thunderdome, it was all a bit, you know, shoulder pads and, and you know, and how's your... It got to be 80s, hadn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. It was a bit uh, mullet. And then... And and then after that we kind of you know as we say lost interest. Um, 
as uh, as the lead actor kind of lost interest in uh, being civil to people. But I, I will say that this film is uh, spectacularly well made. Like, regardless of the fact that it probably doesn't have much of a plot in that sense or a narrative in that sense, the fact that with those things, you don't feel bored, you're not waiting for it to, to end. You know, I've watched films where there's a chase on and I wait till that end so we can pick up the plot again and a bit like that sometimes in a i don't know you know well a james bond film really you'll have like second unit kind of chase sequence and you just know it's a it's a set piece and you'll get back and it wasn't even the main director that directed it where this wasn't that at all this was um you know just tiring it was so good well uh, and engaging again just to interrupt the interview you did with andrew jackson it was a very good point you brought up about never getting lost and i hadn't thought of that and you're absolutely right throughout the whole film and again this goes back to the the centering of the characters um between cuts but yeah it's it was and it is yeah it's a fantastic film i say maybe i was just expecting too much from the plot and yeah not to get lost in those massive action sequences is yeah, is, yeah, Mr. Miller's done very well. So now we're obviously here to talk about the VFX, but I'm going to extend that this week to cover both the grading, uh, the cinematography and, and the VFX. Um, and, you know, we obviously discussed, as we have been, the, the plot a bit at the beginning. There, there are some major sort of... It's not a very tight plot in one sense, but it doesn't need to be because that isn't the purpose of the exercise. It's, it's almost, um, you know, the journey is the reward. And... And that journey is aggressive and loud and very, very skillfully made. And it does do some things that aren't very uh, sort of typical. So is that there are things in this film that you could point to either as, um, I guess, a flaw or as what makes it so interesting. And the first one I want to raise with you is right out of the gate, a lot of these sequences are sped up. And the sequence that opens the film where Max kind of wakes up and tries to break out of the uh, Citadel and ends up... Um, uh, not <laughs> succeeding, um, is clearly sped up. And in some films, you'd say, well, it was really fake because they'd sped it up. In this film, it's a style that, uh, you know, was used in earlier Mad Max films. I think yeah. it's valid. What do you think? Yeah, so I... The interesting part is I, I actually knew this in advance because I've heard, uh, among other things, your interview, that there were parts sped up. And I wonder if I would really have noticed if I didn't know because as uh, you guys said in the interview because it's done in so short cuts in most cases you can't tell now that I was kind of pre-prepared yeah, my mind was pre-prepared to watch for sped up stuff there was a bunch of stuff I did catch and it was like mm, yeah that was sped up so doesn't really matter it's uh, you know yeah I, I think it's kind of valid to do this especially when you do it the way it was done here so it doesn't really telegraph itself particularly like obviously uh, and the fast cutting kind of hides most of the artifacts so I, I think it worked fine actually interestingly i did once hear um mel gibson talking about lessons he'd learned from uh, uh the director and he said that um george miller cut frames out of sequences like literally jump cut in a in a sequence to sort of punch the action. And he used those techniques in Braveheart. So if you actually look at the film Braveheart, which Gibson directed, um, even when his wife is about to be um, attacked and raped and then he goes and defends her around the kind of little uh, village that they're in, you'll notice techniques that Gibson deployed that he learned from George Miller in just cutting out two frames on a punch. 
and yeah. uh, that's uh, a kind of common uh, even my son actually who does strange home videos and stuff has started to do that like when when you try to pull a punch it looks fake so if you just cut out the frame that where you basically your fist is slowing down and take that out uh, and also where the guy starts to try to pull the head back you know the head accelerates the wrong way when you do it yourself you cut out like i say there's two frames you know get rid of those frames and the punch seems to land way harder uh, it's trickier if something else in the background is there that suddenly jumps un yep. unmotivatedly i guess this is stuff we could to these days paint out and fix but yeah it, it's a valid technique really and um, it, it can work a lot so quite well it a huge number of shots were sped up in fact i heard uh and by the way for those of you that haven't heard the podcast we're referring to at fx guide we have a story which is um been very very popular called the graphic tale of the visual effects of mad max in addition to that main story which uh ian here at our office wrote and i think it's terrific I did a podcast with the visual effects supervisor from the whole production, as in the master visual effects supervisor, Andrew Jackson. And then uh, as part of that, we also did a, um, uh, like oh, the second half of that is with the colorist, uh, as we talk about, you know, how, uh, how that was graded on the base light. And so you've got uh, those two interviews um, basically back to back on the podcast and that's what the guys are referring to. Um, Eric Whip's discussion of the grading is in the context of what Andrew Jackson talks about in the first half, because it was Andrew that came up with some ideas that, that uh, Eric deployed in the second half, especially in the day to night stuff. And I'm sure we'll get to that. Anyway, that's what the guys are referring to. And, and I enjoyed those interviews tremendously. Um, I didn't really know Eric that well, though I had heard him talk before, but I've known Andrew Jackson for years and uh, he's a great, great guy. Okay. So swinging that back now to this discussion, um, I don't know. Nick, did you find the speed up thing? Because Andrew said uh, when I was talking to him either on or off the record that uh, like if he was doing it again, he'd shoot everything at like a much higher frame rate to make it easier to speed up because they were shooting a lot of stuff at 25 and they were going to 22 and those are hard things to, to, to warp. Um, but, you know, obviously if you're shooting at, at uh, 60, it's easier to get to any kind of um, base derivative number. But did you notice the speed ups? Did they bother you at all or did you find they just worked? Uh, yeah. <sighs> Again, and now <clears throat> one of my pet hates is the 360-degree shutter. And obviously the speed-ups do give that effect. And I totally agree that uh, as Max was uh, escaping from Joe's citadel, uh, that it worked because, you know, he was lacking blood, he was disorientated, and, yeah, it was really great. Um <sighs> Again, going back to the original Mad Max and the fact that he used the same technique um, sparingly, um, yeah, it did bother me, to be fair. Um, I, again, I will be watching it again and hopefully, you know, now knowing the sort of technical reasons behind things, um, I, I would be more forgiving. Um, <sighs> Yeah, it, as I say, it, unfortunately for me, fast motion should have blur. It's I'm old fashioned. I'm I'm not of the computer game generation. Yeah, I, I have to agree, and I think shooting at sixty frames in that case, you would have to shoot it at sixty frames with a three sixty shutter to be able to extract kind of a usable frame of that. Then you're kind of into dog 
dog uh, Trumbull territory with shooting everything at <laughs> 360 at insane frame rates to be able to derive anything. And of course, that's nice, but uh, the asset management will be hell, I guess. <laughs> yeah. So let me read you a headline, uh, Zap, from CNN. And this was put out on the 15th of May. And the headline reads, Mad Max director, there's no green screen or CGI. Now, I just point out here that this is absolutely not George Miller's fault that that was the headline. But it was on CNN and it was a headline, right? Um, Not exactly what happened. In a film that had 2,400 visual effect shots, there were 2,000... Sorry, 2,400 edits. There were 2,000 visual effect shots, of which 1,700 were done by our friends at Allura. Great people. But... The rest were done by a dedicated unit at uh, Kennedy Miller called Fury Effects, which was just you know put together for the production. Um, did you feel like this was an effects film, or did you feel like the uh, was it reasonable that CNN would assume that there was no green screen or CG, or rather well, portray it that way? The, the, the reality is, of course, uh, you know, filtering uh, technical reality through a news organization. Uh, might end up very strange when it, and especially the guy who sets the headline is always the, the least educated somehow he is after the clicks and not actually telling the truth it seems but yeah i mean the thing what really happens of course there's a lot of practical stuff in this movie this is true uh the practical stuff is though massively enhanced by cg sometimes just in the edge of frame adding mountains where there were none or whatever Uh, but sometimes also there were practical elements that were all composited together like the the the, you know when they blew up the rock all this rock falling down was apparently practical rock not then and there but some other place they shot practical rock and comp that in so there's a lot of practical stuff but it's not well, like there's no visual effects. Eric actually lent his iPhone uh, to Andrew at one point because he wanted to shoot some dust falling down. And uh, they wanted to shoot at high speed and they didn't have any way to do that. And, of course, an iPhone 6 shoots at 240 frames a second. So they went up uh, on the balcony at Kennedy Miller and uh, they knocked out some dust and drywall stuff dropping down and filmed it on the iPhone at 240 frames a second, which is exactly what went in uh, because Andrew didn't want to use CG dust. So in one sense, I think, Nick, the the, the intent of the pre-kind of no CG thing was to say, yeah, we did a bunch of hardcore stunts and where possible we did it for real. And no one was more in that camp than Andrew Jackson, who was the visual effects supervisor, absolutely wanted to get it if he could. But by the same token, I don't know, it's kind of a bit of a slap in the face to artists that obviously magnificently pulled off making this film come together. Absolutely. Or is it? I mean, isn't that the, the, the kind of the greatest compliment when nobody can tell you did an effect? <laughs> Nick, did you think it felt like an effects film? Not at all, no. I must admit, I was very... Having, again, the press beforehand sort of sets you up for you know okay this is practical uh obviously we all know the storm wasn't real but i was have to say gobsmacked uh when i realized those mountains were put in uh there was no point i say again with the dust cloud even though you know it's not real at no point did i question it or was pulled out of the film so no they i mean the guys are real digital magicians. They've done a fantastic job. So, Nick, what did you like I, the most? Sorry, what did you like the most, Nick? Uh, I'll let Zap take that one while I have a think. <laughs> uh, 
Uh, I was just going to say, actually, honestly, the one shot that for me kind of... It was a couple of shots in the dust storm. There's something about, you know, volumetric effects in movies with CG. I complained about it before. And there, there's something there which kind of... It has a look that if you've seen one fluid sim do things, you've seen all fluid sims do things. And it... It, it, I wouldn't say it, it nearly kind of took me out of the movie for for a little bit, but it was just like one or two shots when they were like driving into the dust. Most of it was f- absolutely fine. And now again, nitpicky to to eleven here. See, it's funny, isn't it? Because the most cinematic shot, I think, like one of the most epic shots, is the approaching the dust storm. I mean, it's it's you know stirring stuff it's like uh it's biblical as they're approaching yeah, apocalyptic storm. yeah it's a low wide far away shot you know maybe it's not that wide but it's, it feels like it and you've got this massive wall of um cloud and it just yeah, looks that, like that shot <clears throat> is fine it's actually when we are exactly. tracking behind the vehicle going into some dust that that somehow felt super fake to me and it's just a couple of those shots but this big biblical uh, you're talking about was fine the only issue i had there it seemed like the cars were driving really slowly in those shots so so here's something really interesting the, the guys get lifted up in that car sh- uh, sequence that you're talking about. Now, for a start, I think it's astounding that they actually did lift up some cars um, and, you know, on screens had wind cannons on them and all this kind of stuff. So there was, you know, literally some real stuff in there that looked like it wasn't. The, the car that lifting up, I would have told you, was CG and it, and it wasn't. Or at least it, it transitioned to CG, obviously, at some point. But here's something I found really interesting in talking to the guys. So... <clears throat> They did sims on the guys coming off the cars. And when guys come off a car in a um, in a storm, they basically go into a star position. It's the position of having your hands and arms extended out um, like you're doing a star jump. Because when you're spinning circularly, that's just what happens. It's sort of like the the uh, the nature of inertia and uh, and centrifugal force. You just get sort of go into the star position. That doesn't look very real. What they had to do was then choreograph their guys that were being simmed correctly to sim in a way and be animated in a way that a stunt guy would fall (laughs) because we're so used to the language of stunties that when a stunty does something he like waves his arm in the air like he's kind of trying to claw it at the ground before he like falls and rolls and and so that's how we imagine people to do it so if you actually watch somebody being hit and being thrown off they're gonna not do what we're used to from seeing it so many times in film but i don't know about you guys but for me i've never seen anyone hit by a car and be thrown through the air like that so clearly all i know is the cinematic language of stunt guys and so as a consequence uh, if you do the real thing and simulate it as accurately as you possibly can it's going to look wrong and fake and they actually went back and redid those guys to make them look less like ragdoll sims and more like stuntmen, which I found just like a really fascinating thing in this world of we need it to look real. What they ended up yeah. doing is making it look like real fake people. <laughs> I was just going to say it's the, sort of the reverse of the guitar and steering wheel where everyone presumes it's CG, um, you know, which they did for real. And again, you know, in with the, the sims, you know, one thing I suppose they're not taking into account is what the human mind does as, you know, say, you know, I'm not sick enough to watch people getting knocked over on YouTube. So I, I don't know what it looks like. Um, 
but I'm sure, yeah, people, you know, are going to try and stop themselves, whereas a simulation is just going to take the physics into account. Zap, what do you think? Yeah, this whole field of doing what is right and doing what uh, you think is right or what the, the, the audience expect, it's a very interesting, it, it touches, you know, my field of rendering and textures and surfacing and all that. And it's always an interesting conflict between what would actually happen when you tried X, illuminating material X by light Y or whatever, ex- versus what you expect to see when this explodes or whatever. And there's an interesting balance you have to find find there. And uh, we, the thing is, we've been taught by movies a lot of stuff that turns out when you really see it uh, not be true. A perfect example of this is buildings collapsing. Pre-2001, buildings yep. fell over in movies because we thought the skyscraper, where you blow up the bottom, it will actually topple like a top. If you do the math and think a little bit about it, it will instead do what the towers did, a yep. structural collapse in the spot. Uh, now in movies, if anyone dares to put a collapsing building in, you will have the massive dust cloud and all the, the things that we kind of learned at that horrible day. Uh, so, you know, but it's really interesting. It's like an interesting example of expectations and how they can change, actually, when we learn the truth also, which, yeah. The truth about steering wheels f- flying into the camera, I don't have any ex- personal experience with that yet, though. <laughs> So, Let's hope you yeah. never do. So, Zab, I sat in the cinema, literally beside uh, Ian, uh, the writer of our main article and our, uh, our lead writer, and I literally leaned over to him and said, well, that wasn't real, being you know, like a smartass, yeah. um, <laughs> as the guitar and the steering wheel came right at camera and went back again because I was like, you know, I was... I was only mucking around, of course, but I was, you know, playing off the fact that both he and I knew that there were a lot of effect shots going in, and yet, you know, people in the queue were talking about the fact that um, we were at a premiere, so it hadn't really been out in the in public. In a sense, yet. you were right, though, because it wasn't real, because the both the, the guitar and the, the steering wheel were shot separately, uh, and I think in that shot, the guitar was way more successful than the steering. I was, like, buying the guitar, but, like, the steering wheel, I'm like, come on guys i didn't think the lighting even matched and it was like this is i know this is real because i heard mike talk about it the other day and but this looks almost worse than cg so that was you know i didn't like the steering wheel bit honestly was so, it a nod to 60s 3d do you think you know by mr miller sort of tongue-in-cheek yeah hopefully I mean, but at that point in the film, at that point in the film, you were buying more than you'd seen that at the beginning. <laughs> yeah, right? absolutely. Um, okay, so the thing is, I thought it was fun though that Andrew described that when he wanted to work out where that guitar would go, he they just no one would believe him, so he just built this huge rig with green screens and then just used it like a pendulum and worked out with bungee cords where it would spring to and then repeated it enough times that everyone agreed with him and then they put the camera down so that they would film it. And of course, if you do the same thing with the bungee cords the same way, it lends up going to the same place each time and it won't go further than that because that would not be energy conserving and uh, and of course that's how they got the shot. Um, Andrew's like the prince of that kind of stuff. In the podcast, I, I, I think I pulled him up on it slightly, is that he sounded, because he has a practical effects background, he sounded like he didn't have a digital background, and the guy is immensely talented in both areas. And so um, I, I think he was being modest in his uh, digital skills, but you know, he obviously has no 
stranger to um, to making stuff and and doing things. And when he was at um, at Animal Logic, he and a bunch of other guys like literally built an entire light stage out of bits of tube, like PVC piping and cable ties, and made their own light stage because they wanted to experiment when light stages from Paul Bevick were first appearing. And and Paul knows about this, and it was really funny. They just sort of built one in their um, 3D lab just to see what effect it would have and what they could do with it. Like these guys, like seriously, give them any anything, and uh, they'll try and work out how to do it. I mean, uh, you know, it's a uh, a it's a ma- a marrying of digital and visual effects, uh, sorry, and special effects that uh, that makes it so so good. That being said, <laughs> I yeah, I didn't really like that shot. The the two shots I didn't like was the guitar coming at the screen thing with the wheel because it just felt so fake as in orchestrated and then as you say inside the storm which just seemed like we'd passed the realm of like you know doable um so yeah i mean i think that you know they did the right decision if they had more of the storm effects and more of the comped effects the film would have been the lesser for it um which brings us to the grading zap uh, this film i found remarkable because they shot the day for night stuff two stops over would that be something that you found surprising or does that not raise an eyebrow with you uh well uh, sort of uh i was a little bit surprised by that technique and what i kind of gleaming from what they mean is happening i'm assuming that they are getting some kind of like internal highlight compression in the camera happening that they are kind of utilizing by being in the like higher lightness range of the camera getting this compression on and when they then you know make stuff you know blue and whatever it somehow reads nicer as night um i don't know if i kind of buy it because Theoretically, if you really were shooting real raw, so you had actual linear data coming in, which I'm not familiar enough with the the cameras they were using to know if this is true or not, but if you were, you would be able to basically grade this to look the same in post anyway, assuming you have enough bits of data. And I guess what they might also mean is... Uh, just to have more bits in the dark, that kind of makes sense. But I know is the is it fourteen bits or even sixteen? It's fourteen. Um, uh, I don't. It's, Nick, I think did, it's fourteen. So, Nick, are yeah. you familiar with the technique of that digital stills guys do of shooting over and then bringing it down in the grade? I have to say no. It's not something that I'd uh, come across. But the moment it was explained, it sort of makes perfect sense, doesn't it? With keeping the detail, you know, in the shadows, because if you're bringing something down, you know, naturally your eyes adjust in the dark. So it was one of those that you know you sort of like go from you know what the you know what's this guy on to oh yeah that sort of makes perfect sense. Why you know well hasn't somebody done it before? Yeah, so for those so for those that don't understand, do you want to explain what they were doing or do you want me to? Uh, what about basically bringing the highlights up, uh, sorry, bringing the exposure up so that you can see detail in the blacks rather than stopping it down so that the blacks basically get crushed and you've got no detail. Uh, that's as I understand it. Yeah, so if you if you imagine that in the daytime you're going to have dark shadows under a truck, and uh, and outside where it isn't in shadow, it's going to be much, much brighter. Um, 
and you want to make that day for night. They shot that two stops overexposed. So really nothing in the blacks is being crushed. In other words, nothing in the blacks is actually hitting the base of black, give or take a tiny amount. And uh, the latitude of the camera means even though you overexpose two stops, the the highlights, maybe the pings, but just generally speaking, the highlight regions of the cars and the trucks aren't clipping out. And now you bring it down, but you don't bring it down uniformly. You bring it down so that the the dark colors maybe only come down a little tiny bit, but the top end of the range of colors comes down a lot. And as a consequence, any detail that you saw uh, in the darks are still there. Whereas if you'd uh, you just moved it down uniformly, of course, all the things that were near dark would be crushed to exactly black. Because you're not doing it linearly, because you're just moving it down more at one end than the other, everything that you can see a bit of detail in in the darks is still there. But now there's less range between the under the truck and outside. The range is much less. There's nothing that's really, really bright. Maybe a couple of pings, but that's about it. And then you tint the whole lot blue, and voila, you can see in the darks you have less bright contrast and that's of course what you get at night you get less contrast and uh and then you put the blue on and the audience buys it as night because we have been taught since childhood that blue light means it's nighttime um even the dop was surprised when andrew suggested shooting at two stops over but he uh was shooting with his slr and he had it on um as you probably heard in the interview on automatic to do a bracketed set and he was looking at the bracketed sets and discovering that he could grade it at home or rather in his hotel room at night really really well so when they went to do some tests he encouraged them to test that and sure enough that's what uh, everybody went with yes i guess shooting two stops over basically gives you uh, two bits two more bits of information if and if that's necessary to make it work uh, then, yeah, I, I kind of get it. But I'm, I'm thinking if you have 14 bits of resolution, uh, you should be kind of fine anyway. But these cameras are kind of weird in, in the sense that for them, white is that, that they have the above white stuff in it. So you, so you can overexpose and still have, like on film, you kind of have the, the, the above white information is in there. So the way they define exposure is kind of weird. So in a sense, shooting two stops overexposed is really just choosing, shooting correctly exposed in a different interpretation. So it's all, you know, six of one half dozen of the other in some sense yeah well i i think it works i mean i do think that if no matter how they did it uh i'm a bit over the blue thing being night but um i know bought it in the film yeah for me it was a little uh, unfortunately again i knew this uh, this is one of those things i was looking out for like the speeding up so it was kind of obvious in retrospect because there was very hard shadows this night and i'm not sure that would kind of happen and you have these extreme you know highlights on everything because apparently they went in and sharpened everything as for the blue this ah, but that was, was happening everywhere that wasn't just the highlight thing that's a separate issue and and i was going to hit that yeah. next that was happening on almost every shot yeah. So the the other funny thing with this movie, you know, I was about the color grading. It was not the classical teal and orange look, which I 
loved on one hand, but this movie was perhaps either teal or orange <laughs> because it was teal at night and orange through the rest. But just kidding. But it, the color grading was beautiful. They 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 kept it in a kind of narrow spectral region without it looking ridiculously destroyed, like you know whatever is this Pelham 123 film or whatever these classic <laughs> super teal, super orange films where they only have kept two slices of the color wheel, which just looks ridiculous. Uh, and they uh, didn't do that problem in this Yeah, film. and I think Eric did a really good job grading it. I mean, just to f- the the where the eye thing comes in, which I think is interesting, is, and again, it's the thing you were talking about earlier about pushing the boundaries of what we find acceptable. Like the exposure inside and outside the cab was completely impossible. I mean, you just can't hold that exposure, but they just graded it up. And where I think Eric was such a genius is that he managed to convince me that the exposure in the cab was valid to what was going on outside the cab, even though I'm the first to scream foul when that when that happens. I didn't look at this and say, yeah, it just looks so fake because outside the window is the right exposure. What do you think, uh, Sab? Do you, do you agree? I think it looked fine, and I, I assume they basically exposed. It's kind of the same trick in a sense that we were just talking about day for night. They expose for the innards, so they have all the stuff there. And since the camera still takes some stuff above overexposed, and that information is still there, you could pull it down and make it look nice and keep it a little, you know, bright, you know, rolling off into white, kind of looking as it should. But you could still see what's going on outside. So I, I, I had no problem with any indoor/outdoor shots in this movie at all. So Nick, I want to talk to you now, if I can, because there, this uh, was also for me a really interesting um, change in workflow. That the base lights basically become the finishing device for. Uh, finishing the film and by that I mean a lot more than the grade because Eric was doing an enormous number of sky replacements now I was lucky enough to see a lot of these uh, in a kind of a you know session um, in the theaterette and I mean it was really impressive he was pulling shots that he'd taken in Greece or that Andrew had uh, you know taken on holiday somewhere and then he'd you know bend them turn them and twist them stick them in a shot uh, grade them left and right and you'd suddenly have this kind of not a god rays, but a kind of a uh, lovely sort of halo of light around somebody with a completely different sky. But all of that, I would have quoted as nuke work, uh, and it was being done in the base light. Um, is that like where your head is at, or is that kind of common for you? I mean, what what do you think? Yeah, I mean, we pick up sort of quite a lot of post houses will send us stuff that is beyond their base light or you know, basically the people operating it, maybe. Um, so I have to say it's it's actually a good thing to be doing, especially sky replacements, because we've had situations where the grade has been pushed that hard that it literally breaks your comp. And so for the guy to actually be doing it inside the base, like he's got, you know, he can see what he's, he's breaking or, you know, rather than then, you know, sort of straight back to the VFX house saying, look, you know, this isn't working, why? And it's, well, you know, we weren't expecting you to push it quite that hard. Um, But yeah, it is quite common now that sort of the easier stuff is is done uh, in-house. And then, you know, basically they get to a point where obviously, you know, the big stuff's totally separate. But yeah, they might come to us to, you know, maybe do something that requires a bit of 3D tracking or something. But 
it's not a surprise and it's something I think should be done more because, as I say, you know, it would stop a lot of problems. Hmm. I mean, I uh, I was aware of how good the base light is. I just was super impressed with how much they could do. And I've got to say, I got the complete impression. Well, he stated it. John Seal, the DOP, who was also uh, there talking, just he was he was like, this is the future of filmmaking because he was not having to concern himself with you know, exactly matching direction of light and time of day and a whole bunch of other stuff. And he, he was, you know, terrifically positive about it. He wasn't, uh, oh, my God, we've been replaced. He was like, you know, I can get the what I need to do to get the performances and not worry about this other stuff tripping us up and making it an NG take. And he was, you know, wholeheartedly offering up this amazing level of control as the partnership that now exists between the greater the colorist and uh, and the DOP. I mean, it's a it was a big, big factor. You only have to look at some before shots to realize how much the modeling of light was modeled in that uh, baseline. And, you know, that used to be that you'd have to get that on film. I mean, maybe we're going back, maybe I'm showing my age, but, you, you know, you <laughs> used to have to get that very much in camera to get that kind of uh, quality. And God knows John Seal is somebody that could get it in camera if he wants to. He's an incredibly good DOP. What do you think, Zap? There used to be a lot of stuff you had to get in camera, you know, <laughs> and you don't anymore. But I think it's really exciting, uh, this kind of marrying of the color grading part and the the effects part, which I kind of, I mean, we discussed this over the years, you and I, that that's kind of what should happen, because so many times you've seen massive effects work being completely ruined by the grade changing afterwards um, and massive work put into stuff that you don't see at all after the grade is done. There's a, an example. So some friends of mine at Hydraulics was using an early version of my subsurface scattering shader to doing maggots eating dead cows in Constantine. It was a spectacular shot, and then they decided, oh, wait, this should take place at night, and degraded it down so these cows became black silhouettes, and there was not a single maggot to be seen, and they were, like, you know, devastated. All the work they put into this was just not there anymore and if this information had been there that oh guys we're going to make this night it would have saved them you know weeks of work that was completely wasted now so i think there should be a tighter loop between um, you know grading and like lots going back from the guy grading to the vfx guys so they can adjust you know i mean i even done a effect myself where I was working really subtly with like debris being said through the glow of an explosion so I pushed it to just almost not clip away so you could see the debris stuff and then someone graded it to make it clip and it was all lost so if we can marry these two disciplines to have them happen you know together somehow um, and with good communication uh, between each other or as in this case actually do some of the effects work in the grading suite at the same time, I think that makes a better overall. The final image have to has to become much better doing it that way. So I'm I'm for that. I'm thumbs up. Yeah, I mean I think that you know uh, the process is becoming more fluid in a sense. Um, I know somebody who uh, saw the film multiple times during post, and I'm not referring to Andrew and and. But it's, I'm, I'm not, but not that it's a negative comment. Um, but their thing was that uh, they really were astounded at how much the sky replacement helped move the story forward. Because he said, uh, 
in the scenes that, that flowed um, without the sky replacements, without the transition of, of time that they implied and the, the sort of regionalization of where things were taking place, it felt a bit like, you know, it was sort of like the same thing again. It, it felt a little bit more um, repeating itself. Once the skies were all in and the day for night and everything else, it's that the film just completely flowed much better. And and so this is really interesting. This is someone that was just coming to me. <laughs> he thought he was off the record. Um, <laughs> but the point about it is that uh, their their thought was, which I thought was really, really interesting, is that just sky replacement and that grading really helped make the plot seem like it was moving forward, which is not what you'd expect, right? You'd expect a sky replacement not to be a plot device or at least not yeah, to help the plot move. I found this very interesting. And, and uh, this was one of the things I forgot to look for while I was watching the film because it was I was supposed to. I was going to look for the sped up stuff. I was going to look for the day for night and I was going to look for the sky replacement. And I was too, you know, engulfed in the movie uh, to remember looking for the sky replacement so when i was like 80 percent in i was like oh wait yes sky replacement i haven't noticed a single one so i guess they were super successful yeah now let's get back to your point zap about the framing because it's uh something you mentioned in the opener and i i have to confess i've seen the film with a few people and they haven't noticed it so it's interesting that you did but it is very deliberate that the film is framed very precisely and carefully yeah so of course I was spoiled in the sense that I also kind of knew about this in advance. So uh, it's not like I, I magically discovered it. But w- when that was also one of the things I did think about because like everything was really in the middle, especially in this escape sequence near the beginning. It's like literally everything is completely centered. And this the cuts are so quick as well. Uh, so it really works. You just lock your eyes to the center of the frame and just sit there looking and it all flows very nicely. And maybe I, I didn't do a silly thing like watching this in 3D because why would you do such a thing? But I would guess that for those poor bastards that do watch it in 3D, it probably helps them too, uh, you know, to avoid the, the, the eye going here and there and whatever kind of problem you have with 3D. Um and I, it gave it a look, and apparently uh, this was edited by a woman, right? Who explicitly said, I edited this way because otherwise it would look like it was edited by a man, which was an interesting comment. Um, and the editing with the center framing, I wouldn't say, uh, together, it gave them, I, I can't put my finger, it gave the whole movie a, a different look, feel, somehow. I can't put my finger on it, but I, I enjoyed it. It felt fresh somehow, and not like, oh, we're on thirds, everything, and we're, you know, following the action like this, and I have to put my eye here, there, and whatever. I can't follow what's going on. There were no I can't follow what's going on problem whatsoever, any point in this movie. So, yeah. The, um, this really is a film in the French sense of the uh, director as auteur because to everybody that you speak to, and, and again, not meant as a negative, but like, you know, no one kind of had the vision of it until they saw it, except for George. And in fact, even I saw an interview where, uh, where Tom Hardy said this. He, he said, I got to apologize to you, George, because I didn't understand it when we were filming it. But when I saw it, I was like, oh my God, it makes complete sense. I mean, there wasn't really a script. There were storyboard frames. And then... George is very good, apparently, at editing uh, in his head and no, working on how scenes will will 
put together and also realizing that he only needed, you know, 24 frames to work here. So when somebody else might have gone, well, that didn't work. Um, uh, he was like, yeah, I've got it because he knew that he only needed a moment of it. Um, Nick, what did you think? <laughs> um, well, I, I just wanted to skirt around to the poor so-and-sos who saw it in 3D. <laughs> Was that you? Yes, unfortunately. Oh, really? Yeah, I made oh. that big mistake. Well, we have a local multiplex that has a Limax, and I insist now that, you know, I'm going to go and see it in Limax. At least it's 4K projection. Unfortunately, it's only 3D in Limax, so... And I didn't know it had been converted. I'd read stuff. I believe they originally were going to film 3D, weren't they, many years ago? Oh, they, they even built their own cameras to film it in that, 3D. Yes. Yeah, there was, uh, they spent a fortune, I believe, sort of developing but, physical But John Seale pointed cameras. out it made it a lot more flexible to film because when you've got a single camera with the kind of setups they're doing, it's just easy to move around. Um, yeah. Yeah, physically. I mean, in fact, again, interesting, because, I mean, the, the 3D didn't work at all, unfortunately, for me. Right. Um, and John Searle, again, in a, I don't know whether it was um, an interview you were doing, but he did say that he took no notice of lens limitations for conversions, which, to me, sort of maybe, you know, sort of explains some of the bad conversion. Yeah, well, I, I can't speak to the conversion. I didn't see it. We saw it in uh, Glorious 2D. Well, uh, I will definitely be watching it again in Glorious 2D. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, I liked it a lot. Because I'm, I'm a little worried, you know, when we have such a spectacular, the color grading and all the detail and the stuff they did with sharpening and all that stuff. I'm worried that can get lost in your, you know, 3D lenses somehow. Because I don't know, it's kind of, the movie's kind of bright in spite yep. of even the day for night stuff is kind of bright. And how that would look through a pair of 3D glasses, I think it would lose something. I, I guess they compensate for that for the 3D print somehow by upping the gamma or whatnot. But I, I don't know how you would get the, the justice of the beauty of the color grade seeing it through glasses. Um, I don't know. The um, the really interesting thing for me, and, and, and there's I guess, a lot of really interesting things in the making of this film, but the, <laughs> the, the interesting thing for me is I was looking at the trailer, and the trailer was very much not just were there you know like recut for the trailer but he kind of repoed things moved things around and very tremendously things like sharpening and stuff because he was like well, if you've only got 18 frames to register this so you can stop on frames in the trailer and they look kind of tacky quite frankly um if you're lucky enough to get to the early trailers but of course the reason for that wasn't that they then came back and revised the shots and made them better by the time the film came out. It was simply that George was making it play and be punchy in a trailer format, which one's not meant to pause on. Um, and so, you know, shots that had like had literally got ringing on them in uh, in terms of the sharpening in the trailer were completely fine in the film because in the film they were I don't know twenty eight frames and in the trailer they were 14 and he just was like well we've come you don't know where we are so i need to punch that really really hard um but it was kind of like you know in a in a world where people like me do stop on frames <laughs> kind of interesting that he just went that hard to make the trailer that impactful 
So a good friend of mine, Trey Stokes, uh, always say that, you know, one of the things that is ruining visual effects and movies these days is the ability for people to pause and look on frames because you were never supposed to. Back in the golden days of the 80s, a movie played in the theater and that's where you saw it. And if you blinked during that frame when you were in the theater, you did not see that frame and you will never see that frame until it maybe the movie played in the theater again or 15 years later when someone invented a DVD or the VHS. So, you know, frame-stepping and screwing around with things, I, I think this is a really kind of sort of evil thing that going frame by frame because there's so much stuff that if you take a real, real world, just film an exciting event, a car exploding or whatever, uh, and you look at that and you film it and it looks fine and you see the debris flying and you see whatever... If you step these frames, you can't tell what's going on. Like, there's a smudge here. What's this smudge? I can't tell what the smudge is. Well, that's the motion blurred, you know, headlight of the car flying wherever or something. And when you start doing this in CG, there's a tendency for people to, you know, there's this horrible sickness of I want to see everything, which is what kind of happened when you have all the knobs and all the layers and all the comping and I turn everything to 11, where... When you film something for real, you get what you get, and a lot of stuff, especially on a single frame, is kind of unwatchable. There's noise here, and there's a smudge there, and you don't know what's going on. When you watch it at speed, you see, oh, the smudge was the headlight, the noise was, you know, it actually resolves over time as the shadow under the car, and it's completely clear to you, etc., etc. So I, I think people should stop this nonsense of single framing. And in, I think in VFX, anyone who actually single frames an effect should be kind of punched in the head you should watch it at speed because if you miss it at speed then you know there's a perfect example you guys ever seen a little film called star wars right <laughs> kind of unknown little film done in the 70s some george lucas guy in the beginning there's a completely unknown shot of a big spaceship coming in flying over the camera you probably never heard of it and there's these laser guns and there's these bright flashes of lights. How many of you, all of you noticed that the timing of all the flashes of light are off by 18 frames in the entire opening? Please raise your hand. And my hands are firmly down. Indeed. Exactly. Exactly. So this was noticed by a couple of guys that are doing, they call it the legacy restoration, where they're going from trying to make yeah. a, a Blu-ray or even a 4K, I think, of the real original Star Wars. They have a bunch of prints, they have a bunch of laser, they, they use from every source they can and try to conglomerate together the best possible, most original Star Wars ever. And there's a beautiful video where he's going through his opening shot and he kind of notices, hey, this flash is not matching up, like where there's a hole in the flash where the opening in the bottom of the ship should be, but they don't line up. And he figured out it's off by 18 frames. And nobody has noticed this before. If you had single-stepped this sequence ever, you would have noticed it because he did. But if we haven't noticed it since 1977... Okay, but but, but here's know. the thing, right? Like, Did you not love the fact that there was the little music box that he handed the girl that was a reference to the second film? And didn't you love the like uh, sawn-off shotgun and all the other references to the other films? Like, isn't there... I mean, I understand what you're saying about the, you know stepping through the pixel by pixel but by the same token there's so much stuff in this the cars that ate paris vw um spiky 
uh, Beetle. You know, like there's just so much stuff in here that's like friendly nods to, you know, people that love George Miller's work. And and that it doesn't take me out of the film. It makes me feel loved and embraced by the warm petrol-soaked body of a limp sort of road the, the, warrior. Yeah, the only thing... I must admit, I'm not... I haven't seen the original Mad oh my Max God. stuff since... <laughs> really? Since, oh, no, hang on. Since. All right, sorry. Uh, sorry. Since, yes. redeemed himself since, since, since they were basically no, in right. the theater. Uh, yeah. So I my memory of the originals are... Vague at best. You know, Zap. If we ever, if we ever have a Swedish, if we ever have a Swedish sauna, you'll see that there's an interceptor, interceptor tattooed on my butt. But okay. So (laughs) my only issue with the production design in this movie for the cars and all the stuff, I mean, the the opening shot is similar to the opening shot of Road Warrior. Yeah. That that's much. It's like identical, I think. And there's stuff in there. There were a couple of cars. have you seen, there's a Norwegian uh, animated film from the 70s called Pinchcliff Grand Prix, which uh, is Interestingly, about a I haven't seen that. No, no. no you haven't no, seen no. that? Okay. Norwegian animated yeah, films it, from the 70s weren't very big in my house. <laughs> they weren't? <laughs> well, it's actually was. called, it's called Fluoclipa Grand Prix in the original Norwegian. Okay, anyway, sure. um, they have a car in there. How I could have missed Il it. Tem- Il, Il Tempo Gigante, which is uh, this psyched out steampunk racing car. Yeah. And I was reminded of that. Uh, you can Google Pinchcliffe Grand Prix if you want at some point. Okay. It's, uh, I was kind of reminded of the, that in some of the ridiculousnesses of the cars, but uh, I, yeah, it's fine. And, you know, everything was spiky because it's more dangerous, I guess. I don't know. Okay. Good to know. <laughs> <laughs> one thing I did like, though, one thing I really did like about the movie, totally not visual effects, but the character Nux, uh, who yep. had kind of the biggest character arc in the yes. movie. It was kind of interesting to have that happen to kind of a tertiary character. It's almost like, in a sense, he's almost... Because clearly Mad Max is not. Mad Maxine is probably more the, char- <laughs> the title character. But he was the one who got the arc, which is kind of interesting left-fieldiness from the whole plots, uh, plot style of the film. You know that if we didn't have people that stopped it frame by frame, no one would know that uh, in that scene at the beginning with Nux, that Max has got tattooed on him day 1,245, uh, 10 hands, 180 pounds, no name, no lumps, no bumps, full clear, uh, life clear, two good eyes, no busted limbs, uh, piles okay, genitals intact. You wouldn't know that, and I needed to know that. Okay. Um, okay, was there... <laughs> so... So, would we want to see a Mad Max, whatever this hour is now, five? Would we want to see a, a sequel to Fury Road? Yeah. I, I th- think a mashup with Kung Fury would work. <laughs> Do we think that if you did a sequel to Fury Road, that it would need to have um, your Mad Maxine in it? Or could we do it off Tom Hardy alone? Mm. I'm not sure he carried... Honestly, I he was like... What did he even do in this movie? It's like they needed him because it was called Mad Max. So they needed apparently some person with the name of Max. But And there was this one kind of cool thing in the middle where he just walks off and you see an explosion through the mist and he comes back with like lots of guns and ammunition and stuff. It's kind of like the, uh, sorry to say that, but the... The Chuck Norris sequence in uh, one of the Expendables <laughs> wow, movies. Wow, you guys just, he just <laughs> walks places off. With that thing uh, this week. <laughs> Can't believe it. <laughs> um, Sorry. Uh, yeah. 
No, no, that's I will fine. Shut up now. So, <laughs> I yes. sort of agree because I mean, uh, Nux and Furiosa were the two main characters. I've actually noted that they, to me, were the best actors because I, I, a, I yep. didn't recognise either of them. Charisse Theron uh, is just really good, isn't she? I mean, she just, yeah. is. she's just nails it. And and you know what? I mean, obviously, I understand that you couldn't have a male character rescuing the wives because that would be just one male taking over some other male's women. It was like horrendous. But I thought it was wonderful that people thought that the film had a feminist um, bent and it wasn't just a ginormous sort of testosterone fest, boy fest. Um, I, I thought it was terrific. I mean, it's really. I mean, there are all sort of conspiracy yeah, yeah. theories about it, but I just thought it was great that they thought that. I I had absolutely no problem with that part, but it was like, it almost felt like they wanted to somehow overplay that just a tad, which made Max do almost nothing. I don't know. It was maybe some. He seems so unsympathetic as a character as well. It's Agreed, like, yeah. But just because his I, I name know, is in the title. Like, is yeah. that what makes a Mad Max film just Max? Or was what makes Mad Max film the world of Mad Max? In other words, yeah. if like Star Wars, right? It isn't just about, uh, we hope, uh, Vader, because they're about to make some films where Vader ain't in it. Um, it's the world of Star Wars, right? Now, yeah, yeah. in this particular no, case, is it I the world agree. of Mad Max or the Max himself? Yeah, then the question, would he even have need to be in it maybe but uh, we're nitpicking like crazy here <laughs> did anybody else was bothered by the garden spade he had in his face I kept giggling I thought that, that was great because <laughs> I, I, I like the idea of the repurposing of things and not making things new I thought it was great I mean it was you know obviously so deliberately that I was thinking it was something like out of Transformers but he does like to wear his masks doesn't he old Mr Hardy ah <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes yes um I yeah, at least we could understand him a bit better than we could in that film. Um, and yeah, just a bit, bless him. Could I come around to Furiosa's arm replacement because it was quite interesting. Oh yes, please. Yeah, because in the interview that uh, you did, Mike uh, Andrew sort of <laughs> skipped over it. I, I, I did write, I did note down that he um, sort of basically, oh yeah, it was it was relatively easy, and we just painted it out, and it was like. Mm, I, I understand, you know, we are in the 21st century and everything else that happens in the film is... Right, but if you were you know, one of the artists much... that did the painting out, you'd want a bit more of a nod than that, is that Yeah, because, I mean, for a main... I mean, you look back, I mean, okay, it's quite a few years, I think, in 94 when, um, forgive my pronunciation, Gary Sinise, I believe... Sinise, yeah. Thank you. <laughs> in uh, in Forrest Gump. You know, that was a huge, you know, I can remember that being on the news in the UK about, you know, wow, look what they did. They took his legs away. Yeah. And like, here we are sort of 20-ish years later. And it's like, oh, yeah, that was fine. Yeah, that was nothing. I think that the, one of the most interesting bits with that was actually how it's introduced or actually how it's not introduced in the film. Yeah. yeah. It's like they don't yeah. even mention it. It's like suddenly after a while, like, hey, wait a minute, what's with her arm thing? Zap, did they you see that there's a woman that, uh, or a girl, I'm gonna, I'm, I don't want to be patronizing, like a younger woman who uh, published something on the net about this and she uh, had lost uh, an arm and she was in tears over this because it, they didn't make it a disability and they didn't make it a plot point and she just got on and did stuff and she said yeah. as a girl growing up obviously younger than she was um you know she wished she'd had a heroine on screen who could kick butt 
and wasn't defined by her disability in adverted commas she wasn't defined by the amputation and the and the lack of a limb she was just dealing with it and uh and obviously sometimes that's really awkward to deal with and sometimes it's not but it wasn't the thing that was the only thing that defined her and it was actually a really quite moving i mean like those things can sometimes be just clickbait but this one was actually kind of moving and and i have to say i could when i heard that i sort of dawned on me that you know yeah we really never got a backstory nor did we have to have her i mean there was a bit of a plot point at the end where, where, with the arm but it wasn't anything more than anything else could have been yeah i mean yeah, it reminded think... me of um the brad pitt character in inglorious bastards where at no time they ever said you know made any mention of the horrendous cut across his throat and I do like things. I think that's, you know, again, that's brave filmmaking. It's, um, it's you know, it's good to see. Yeah, the less you tell, I mean, this thing build universe, they build the world. And kind of the less you say about these things, the better. It, uh, and the only, <laughs> my practical thinking about like, what is actually powering this thing in this kind of steampunk, diesel punk universe? I, I'm not sure. It apparently worked very well. But uh, yeah, I just love the fact that they didn't even mention it. It wasn't even a thing. It took like half them like, wait a minute, she's lost an arm. Oh, I didn't notice, you know. Yeah, no, it was good. It was good. I think it would have been hard to do, but by the same token, it was made easier by this tremendous uh, sort of trick of having a, a hand thing at the end that meant you weren't removing the whole thing. Um, so, you know, that did help. Uh, but yeah, I can see Andrew's point. It wasn't maybe as hard in some scenes as it could have been. You know, it's that thing where you get somebody, I, I think when the film... Um, uh, it's a film where they've got time and they're running out of time and it's on their arms. You know, that film. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. In, I think it is in time. In time, right. And there's one in bit time, where yeah. she gets dressed and for no apparent reason, she pulls this kind of sock over her arm because it's literally like saying, you know, if she wears this, we just don't have to make everybody shot an effect shot. So could she just pull something over her arm and uh, and then we can keep going? He's got long sleeves, so that's fine. And we, you know, he's got a jacket on. Great. We don't have to make everything an effect shot. And, and uh, so, yeah, no, I thought it was, I thought it was good, but I thought, um, yeah, as I say, the best part about it was the fact that they didn't need to uh, discuss it. Well, guys, we're almost out of time, but I want to say thank you so much for uh, talking about the film. I, as I say, just loved it. I found it to be a really great piece of filmmaking and there's a lot of lessons to be learned there if you can ever get past how much fun it is to actually kind of study what uh, a master is doing in a obviously in a medium that he knows very very well um zap uh you've got a conference coming up soon haven't you in your neck of the woods yes we're having uh june 25th and 26th in the the city of Utrecht in Holland. We have the Dutch version of SIGGRAPH coming up where I will show up. And the way of doing SIGGRAPH the Dutch way is that you take, uh, scale it down to 250 people and you hold it in a pub. Excellent. So, Like your style. Yeah, so le exactly. So, you know, there'll be a bunch of us there. It will be really, a, you know, a rendering mecca. Paul de Bevec is showing up. Oh, Paul's um, coming up. That's good. Yeah, Paul's coming over and, you know, the V-Ray guys are coming over and we'll be a whole bunch of people there and probably slightly uh, drunk at the evening. It is in a pub after all. It's open bar. So, yeah, it'll be interesting. And, uh, uh, and the, unfortunately, tickets are sold out. So, sorry, I can't help you there. If but, you, uh, you want to follow you along, are you going to be posting anywhere about it or...? Yeah, we'll be posting uh, 
either on my Twitter at, at MasterSap will mention it, or we have this uh, glorious rendering blog, which I plugged the last time where we only managed to make one post so far. Yay, <laughs> uh, skill. Uh, but uh, th there will be more coming because we might have some interesting toys. Say no more. Okay. Mm. Now, uh, <laughs> Nick, boundaryvfx.com is your site, but do you also have a Twitter feed or anything? Yeah, it's uh, at Nick Lambert, and uh, yes, all the uh, information put in there has nothing to do with boundary effects. It's all my own personal mad thoughts, but uh, people are welcome to follow me. Excellent. As I said, foundryvfx.com. So the thing that you didn't discuss, um, and I waited till the very end for this because I, I, I know that if I'd brought it up at the beginning of the show, we'd have never heard the end of it. The thing that you didn't <laughs> discuss, Sap, is the, the singlet cam. Uh, the SenseFly that Andrew used. I think it was a singlet cam, but anyway, it was the SenseFly um, uh, camera rig. So this is basically uh, the reason I waited, dear listeners, to the end of the show to discuss this is that our good friend Zap is a bit of a drone freak, uh, <laughs> likes to uh, to fly things. If you've ever followed his uh, Twitter feed and stuff, you'll know that uh, he's decapitated several large uh, trees and made them uh, considerably shorter. But instead of being a drone, um, Andrew used this thing, which basically is extraordinary. If you haven't seen it, Google SenseFly, it's S-E-N-S-E-F-L-Y.com. And you basically take this thing out of a suitcase. He, he did this four years ago, by the way, to get the rock faces of the Citadel. You take it out of a suitcase, you shake it to switch it on, and then you throw it out. And it basically looks like a very, very small stealth jet fighter with a propeller. And it then just flies around in circles until you tell it where it wanted to go. And then it just flies all over where you want, in which case was the Blue Mountains of like a rock faces in, in uh, outside Sydney. Uh, basically doing a full-on GPS-based uh, scan, um, photos, everything else of what you want. And then it comes back and then it's even got software to reconstruct the journey, everything that it saw, the terrain. Um, it's just extraordinary. And I, I just, I found it stunning that you didn't mention it, Zap. Uh, that's because I didn't have a clue, actually. So that was complete no news to me they were using this. But yeah, the, this technology with all the droney stuff has come so far so quickly these days. So it's kind of amazing. It was all started by, you know, the gyro stuff from the cell phone industry. And actually from the Wii hand controller, all this kind of were cheap chips were made with gyroscopes in them and then some people realized hey gyroscopes can tell which attitude something has in space let's put propellers on it and the rest is kind of history and the whole thing is evolving so quickly and being a nerd as i am you know flying this thing i fly these fpv you know with, with video goggles and it's like you're sitting in it and you zigzag through the trees and stuff no no it's and, and absolutely and, and you look too. tremendously like you're having a ball of a time when you're doing it but this thing is different right this thing is like like, yeah, yeah. forget the controller, autonomous. forget the yeah. goggles and the geek out, forget yep. propellers like a helicopter. This is like a stealth fighter. You literally take mm -hmm. it out of this yep. box, shake it, standing up, throw it. It just flies away and then just automatically zigzags over the ground below it, sensing what it's yep. doing, producing a bunch of information. I mean, you couldn't have anything easier and then it comes back and it uses i think emotion or something to then map that out into something the guys make a bunch of these things but andrew did this in the days before drones were as common as they are now but this thing i mean they do sell kind of heli drone type things but this thing you have to see it to believe it it's just the most uh i mean 
it, it's, it's literally like the kind of thing that some spy would pull out of his thing and, you know, just sort of use. And you'd go, well, that's so fake. Um, it's like the mapping drones they used in uh, Prometheus. They s- throw these little spheres yeah. around. How they flow, yeah. I don't know, but they map everything. Yeah. And, and it, you do this for real. Yeah. It's quite astounding what technology can do. Well, anyway, if you want to learn more about um, ways to uh, navigate and map uh, parts of the uh, Swedish uh, Norwegian <laughs> landscape, um, check out Zap's uh, site. He uh, has lots of fun doing stuff and lots of uh, really great shots of him looking at a taking off drone, which I always enjoy watching, uh, grinning as he does from ear to ear. <laughs> but uh, yes, you know a lot more about this than I do. All I know is that uh, Andrew used it and that's what they use for the rock faces in the Citadel. But there's more about that in our article that I say that uh, Ian wrote. Terrific story over at uh, FX. I've got some of the most popular stories we've had this year. It's uh, really uh, done well. Guys, thanks so much for being with us. I really appreciate you taking time. And it's such a joy, uh, Nick, to invite you to the show. So thanks. It's been my pleasure. Thanks very much. Uh, guys, we have some great films coming up. Um, obviously, uh, we're just at the beginning of uh, the season. We've got our tickets already for the premiere of um, Jurassic World, which Excellent. I know <laughs> I know has some really good stuff in it because we've already been uh, preparing for that. So that'll be uh, a show coming up and a ton more stuff. So until then, oh, we've even got a Mission Impossible coming up now, I think of it. Um, yeah. Really? Oh, yeah. Rogue well, as long as you don't do Tomorrowland, that'll be fine. <laughs> Oh, come on, I like Tomorrowland. It was just really good. I thought it was a lot of fun. And really, really nice uh, models. But don't, don't want to get started on that right now. That's a whole different show. Um, I do want to thank uh, our team for putting stuff together. Um, so Todd is our producer and uh, uh, does a terrific job in getting our, um, uh, our dossiers together each week. And Ian does a whole lot of stuff in, uh, in getting the uh, show ready. And there's just a ton of people that um, that put the show together. I don't thank them each week, and that's my my mistake. Um, Dodge, Todd Shulton has been with us for years, as has uh, Ian and uh, Jim and the editors and the guys. But uh, to all of them, thank you so much. And thank you guys for listening uh, and being with the show. We love getting uh, uh, tweets and comments, apart from the ones that you can get from listening and following me at, at Mike Seymour. There's also our own VFX show uh at VFX Show um, that you can follow on Twitter. So thanks so much for being with us and we'll talk to you next time. See you. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at vfx at fxguide.com. Copyright 2012, FX Guide, LLC.